like let's just even say it's depression you will believe you're always depressed when such is not the case like in some situations and in some environments you're, you're actually going to be quite happy, but you will downplay or even ignore it or be mindless to it because it doesn't fit the label or the identity that you, you've now espoused. And so Hi, my name is Evan Herman, and I'm documenting my journey on becoming the best version of myself while learning how to be an entrepreneur and developing the successful habits that are necessary to get and keep me there. If you want to come alongside of me and make this journey together, we'll be listening and learning from some of the world's greatest mentors in the areas that matter most, faith, family, finances, friendship, fitness, and fun. So join me on the Whole Person Podcast. Today, we are talking to an individual who understands the human psyche. He understands the concepts of willpower and the struggle to do the things that you want to do, but have a hard time actually doing them. He actually wrote a book called Willpower Doesn't Work. In his most recent book that we're going to be talking about today, personality isn't permanent. It debunks the persuasive myths of personality that have captured pop culture. For example, personality tests like Myers-Briggs and the Enneagram are not only psychological destructive, but are no more scientific than horoscopes, which is kind of funny because I have studied or indulged myself in so many different personality tests to figure out who the heck I am. Uh, <laughs> it's true. I know. It's, that's why I said they're pervasive. Uh, pervasive. And that amazing voice that you hear is Dr. Benjamin Hardy. He is the organizational psychologist and best-selling author of Willpower Doesn't Work. From 2015 to 2018, he was the number one writer in the world on Medium.com. During that time, he grew his email list from zero to an amazing 400,000 without paid advertising. Ben and his wife, Lauren, adopted three children from the foster care system in February of 2018. And one month later, his wife, Lauren, got pregnant, get this, with twins who were born December of 2018. They live in Orlando, and Ben's blogs are read by millions monthly. Dr. Benjamin Hardy, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing great, Evan. Good to be with you, man. Excited to uh, have a gritty conversation with you. <laughs> I likewise, likewise. I'm I'm a fan of yours, and just for those that are listening, this podcast has been a long time coming. I, I'm not kidding. It's at least been six to eight months, somewhere around there. Um, of waiting from when we scheduled it. Cause I think it was originally six months and then it got bumped out another two months. I believe uh, it. <laughs> and, and I had I, to go into the pain cave to write this book. I disappeared for a while and just had my assistant say no to everything. Pretty much. Yep. And, and you know, I'm just <laughs> so excited to have you because you know, not just the idea of having to wait for something so good, but <laughs> someone that you thoroughly wanted to talk to. So just to, just to kick it off, um, I've, I've grown in the real estate industry 
through personal growth and all these classes and the disc test and strength finders, Myers-Briggs, because there's this concept, the better you know yourself, the more self-aware you are, and the more you know your personality or the personalities of others, the better you can make a connection and the better your sales will be. And I don't do it just for sales, but I have a genuine interest in human behavior. But why, why do you feel like that needs to be debunked? Um, I, I guess a question I have for you, just before we go into it, and I'm going to explain why these tests are not scientific and why they actually create what Carol Dweck would call a fixed mindset. Um, they also lead you to overly attaching to your current identity versus becoming someone who I would argue is a lot better. So rather than trying to discover yourself, it's a lot more powerful to intentionally create the personality you want. But first and foremost, I just want to know, like, realistically, what have these tests done for you? Not in hiring or not in meeting other people, but what have they done for you to help you become more self-aware and to achieve bigger goals for yourself? That's a great question. In the context of achieving goals, I don't think it's helped me at all. Um, so what have they done for you then? Aside from, like, interesting, curious, just maybe interesting information, what, are they, what have they done for you if you can I really think pinpoint it? So if I had to pinpoint it, it's helped me understand who I am and kind of why I might do or say or have some of the ideologies that I do or ways I look at life. Uh, and then also on the other hand, I feel like it's helped me because when my wife's taken, it's helped me to understand her and how to communicate to her in the way she needs to be communicated to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, and, I think that, I think that they can provide a, a nice fast snapshot uh, for stuff like that. If, if that's needed, I think, I think the higher emotional intelligence you get in social intelligence, the more you and your wife can get to know each other without such measures. Um, but I will, I'll start by explaining and adding to and expounding upon why people like these tests. Um, they really give you a sense of identity. So for you, for an example, like you've taken these tests to become what you've described as self-aware. And so they've given you some sense of awareness about things that you either weren't aware of or that you just didn't take the time to define. Um, and so identity is something that's super important. Um, even though they're called personality tests, what they've actually done for you is given you a sense of identity. Oh, I'm this kind of person. And so you can actually describe yourself to other people. Uh, and it's very, it's, it's, it's painful for people to not have a sense of identity. It's, it's, it's painful for people not to have like, boxes that they can put themselves in and say this I'm the type of person that does this and so they they do give you a sense of identity that one of the big pro problems is is that you then over attach to the identity that identity that the test has given you not the test that or not the identity that you would intentionally have chosen for yourself you're right. now saying oh this is who I am this is great now I understand myself now I can actually go and build the life that I want um, or not even the life I want, but the life that's comfortable or the life that's convenient or the life that uh, doesn't hurt. Um, and so what, 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 uh, so Har um, Ellen Langer is a Harvard psychologist and she's spent a lot of time studying mindfulness. And one of the big things that she's found over and over is, is that when people assume labels, <laughs> like, so for example, whatever your strength finder is or whatever your disc is, you, you know, or your Enneagram or such, you, you get a label, you get a category, you get a type. Um, 
And by the way, any form of type-based personality test is not scientific because from a psychological perspective, there's actually no such thing as a true psychological type. So if you call yourself a D, for example, that's actually not actually true because <laughs> it's not always true. It, in, in some contexts and in some situations, it's definitely not true. But when that's you funny. I've, I've referred to myself as a D many, many times. Yeah, so, of course. Yeah, so you've, so assumed, it's, you've assumed the label, but what, what Alan Langer has found and what the research on mindfulness shows is that when you overly attach to a label, First off, you you identify you not only identify with it, you come to defend it, um, but psychologically, what it does is it creates tunnel vision. It creates what's called mindlessness, where you 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 create. So in psychology, they call it selective attention. You don't see the world as it is; you see the world as you are, or you see the world through your identity. And when you have a label, like let's just even say it's depression, you will believe you're always depressed when such is not the case. Like in some situations and in some environments. You're, you're actually going to be quite happy, but you will downplay or even ignore it or be mindless to it because it doesn't fit the label or the identity that you, you've now espoused. And so labels create tunnel vision. And they also, because you've owned it as an identity, it stops you from imagining being someone different. It stops you from pursuits that would be outside of the label, which may have been what you genuinely wanted or which may have been great. And so they actually lead, you know, overly assuming a label, it, it, it greatly limits your options. Um, but the fact of the matter is, like, there's, there's really cool research now in psychology talking about, like, the, like the psychology of your future self and the psychology of your former self and, and, the, and the fact that, just take you, for example. Would you, would you argue that you're exactly the same person you were five years ago? Absolutely not. What's different about you? from who you were five years ago? Um, I, that's even a great question. When I, so I'm 32. I'm going to use the past 10 years. I'm 32 as well. Go ahead, go back that's 10 years. Who were you 10 years ago? What was your I, focus, your goals? What's different about you from 10 years ago? Almost everything. So my focus, my goals, since I was seven, I had this idea of being a pastor. Okay. Interesting. I went to, or Roberts University, got a degree in theology, graduated, could not get into a long-term vocational pastoral role, not, not even specific lead pastor, but just a role. Um, I served at many churches. Well, then I kind of got burnt a little bit by the church and, or churches, as well as my degree served me nothing in the real world. I started selling insurance. I had a lot of part-time jobs. I had like 21 part-time jobs in less than four years around 2010 to 13. The economy wasn't that great here. So all I could get because my degree meant nothing were part-time work. And then I decided to get into real estate because even if you know, I couldn't make money in real estate, at least I'd have something steady to go put my hands to and no one could fire me. But then that's when I started the journey of personal growth and self-development and entrepreneurship. I've never had those desires, those ideas, those attachments. So when I started in 2013 to even now, one, I feel like I'm way more self-aware. I'm more dedicated to, to what I'm doing now. Simultaneously through this journey, there's been me wanting to be in ministry vocationally, but I have a much more entrepreneur event and because of it, it's made me pay more attention to the political environment. It's <laughs> made me pay attention to social cues that 
I've never anticipated before. But then here's the other thing, and this is going to get into later questions. I have goals that I've set for myself that I haven't been able to reach. I get frustrated. There's this person that I want to become that I struggle with because I'm not that person yet. And through all this, there's a mild identity crisis. There was self-hatred and, in a sense, idolatry towards God because I believed God should have made me one way that I perceived myself that I should be versus who I currently am. So That's interesting. There you go. Um, so it's safe to say that if you were to have a conversation, the current you with the you 10 years ago, that you'd be basically talking to a different person in many respects. Yes. Yeah. Um, so basically, so there's a Harvard psychologist. His name is uh, Daniel Gilbert. He's done, he wrote a book called Stumbling on Happiness. He's also uh, done a great TED talk called The Psychology of Your Future Self. But he's done a lot of research on personality change over time. And one of the things that he finds is, is he'll start by asking the question, have you seen a lot of changes in yourself, such as your interests, your beliefs, your goals, uh, your habits, even your environment, your relationships? Have you, because your personality is your consistent attitudes and behaviors. Um, and he says, even your tastes and your preferences. And he, and he asks people regularly, have you seen changes in, in those things over the last 10 years? And people will be like, just like you said, oh gosh, I'm not even the same person I was. And then he'll ask people, well, who, do you think that you're going to have just as much change in the future? And people generally say, I don't think so. I don't think I'm going to change that much in the future as much as I changed in the last 10 years. And so Gilbert has two statements. One is, and by the way, there's a psychological phenomenon about this. It's called the end of history illusion. But what Gilbert says is, first off, human beings are works in progress that mistakenly think they're finished. Um, because we think that the person we are right now is kind of like the evolved version of us, <laughs> that we need to now become self-aware of so that we know who we are, even though it's obvious we've already changed so much in the last 10 years. We think that now the us, the current us is the real us, which... Um, is more about perspective than anything. Uh, the other thing he says is, is that the reason why people have a hard time imagining or, or thinking about a future self is because it's a lot easier to remember the past to imagine the future. Mm -hmm. And it's not that you can't have a future self uh, and, and intentionally design uh, a future-based identity. It's that people don't take the time to imagine the future. And one thing that's very interesting is, is that trauma as one component of personality greatly diminishes a person's ability to be imaginative. Um, and so basically what the researchers in, in psychology are now showing and finding, which is really interesting, is first off, thinking about your former self, it's, it's pretty easy to say, I'm not that person anymore, and to, to not identify with your former self. But when it comes to your future self, if you actually take time to conceptualize that person and think about who that person is, what that person cares about, what they're up to, what they're thinking about, what their goals are, um, it's it's it they're a different person than you are right now they're in a different situation they're thinking about different things hopefully they see the world better <laughs> than you see the world right now because they've gone through learning and experiences and so it's really good for decision making to distinguish your current and your future self as two different people they're two totally different people and uh, then you can start to build an identity with intention around who your future self is and then you can start to build your life your environment your story around who that person is and so there's a lot of really cool research on this but i think that from my perspective rather than getting your identity from a personality test and then overly identifying with that personality and then creating you know a fixed mindset it's a lot more powerful to be flexible about your identity knowing that your future self is going to be different than you right now they're going to see the world differently and they're going to have a different identity and so 
then you can start to hold your labels a little less tightly uh, and you can start to live a little bit more intentionally. So I really like the idea that you talked about flexible identity because, you know, when I look at my life, I look at, wow, there's some things I really liked about myself in the past that I'm just not that person right now. Here's one example. Because I wanted to be in ministry, for whatever reason, I spent more time in my devotion and my religious practices than you do now. So much more than I do now. Um, So there's elements of your former self that you like better. Correct. That that I've moved away from. I agree. I I can say the same about myself. So how do... Man, this is so good because I got so much going on in my head. So if there's elements of my past self that I like better, but there's also things that I'm wanting to still become in the future, how do you reconcile all this? Because it feels very much like an identity crisis. And, and I've lived that over 10 years because what I wanted to do, what I wanted to become just didn't happen. And then I didn't know what to do with that. So now I have to go create this new idea or plan for my life that I originally didn't intend. Well, there's a lot, there's a lot involved in what you're describing. Um, uh, let me start by sharing a quote that I think is yeah. very meaningful. Um, so the quote is from Robert Brault. He said, we are kept from our goal, not by obstacles, but by a clear path to lesser goals. Think about that for a second. I want you to chew on that. We are kept from our goal, not by obstacles, but by a clear path to lesser goals. Interesting. So a first question I would have is, is, you know, you talked about what we're describing as a failure. Something didn't work out the way you thought it would. And so you then chose a different path. Um, and that is essentially the description of trauma to some degree, like in, in um, like there's, there's a lot of research on what's called math trauma, you know, essentially math trauma and any other form of trauma is, is that something happens to you. You know, let's just say in this case, a math, someone like a math teacher tells you you're not good at math or you fail a test and you internalize that into a narrative, a, a story about yourself. And that becomes a, a fundamental aspect of your identity where you say, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> like, you know, if someone tells you you're not good at math, it's kind of a blow if you actually believe it. And it then shapes your identity and your narrative. And then that identity uh, shapes your behaviors and your goals. And so rather than continuing forward in that path, your imagination towards that path and your future and your flexibility towards that path diminish. Um, because you just, you've overly assumed the idea. It's called a cognitive commitment that you can no longer do that thing because some experience was so painful that you've, it's been traumatic to you and you haven't resolved it. You weren't able to reframe the experience and turn it into learning. And so as a result, it's still just some painful memory that you're actually still carrying with you. And it's now driving your decisions to go do something else. So since 2008, I have lost essentially one close person in my life each year. Okay. Uh, through that time, I, I lost a child. She was a premature stillborn. Over the past summer, we, my wife lost a pregnancy. Um, I lost two of my close friends in a plane crash. Died in the same yeah, plane. A lot of tragedy, a lot of pain you've obviously gone through. I, as an individual, I feel far more broken than I've ever been in my life. 
probably a little less compassionate because of all the hurt, all the trauma, frustration. I've also learned a lot. And through this process, somewhere along the way of hurt, of not being able to achieve the goals that I've wanted from, from the idea of ministry, I feel like if I have higher, loftier goals now, while I really want to attain them, I almost also feel like because of all the hurt, like it's just not my lot in life to, to have the success or the accolades or, or the things that I, I really, really want to achieve. You know, I, I want to be a person of influence. I want to be someone who leaves a positive impact on a larger scale in the world. You know, I would love to write a, a best-selling book. I would love to be a traveling speaker and author and, and teacher which has become the new course that I'm kind of going towards after ministry didn't take hold. And so through this process, I'm still trying to figure out who I am or who I need to become, what goals I should set for myself. So I guess, I guess the the question I'm asking is we talked about here, I I wrote this down and I want to ask it specifically all right, uh, okay. go ahead. I also have a lot of questions for you now. <laughs> okay. Well, let's, let's do that. Let's go with your question. Well, let me ask you some questions real quick. Because what you said is, is because of all the things that happened to you now, you feel like it's not your lot in life to get essentially what you describe as what you want. You're saying right. all of these events have happened to you. And as a result now, it's not, you're not capable or you're not able or, or life's not accessible for some reason or another, all of these events have led you to the conclusion that you can't have the life you want or that you're not capable. I think more, I don't feel capable. Why? I think I feel broken. And because of all these events, you just don't feel like you have the capacity to achieve what you really want or connect these dots for me for a minute. Yeah. So as a person, I feel broken. Okay. But I also feel like I've made high lofty goals that haven't been attained and I just don't see a way of, of them becoming reality. I don't. Why not? Hmm. What does you feeling broken have to do with the idea that you don't think that your goals can be reality? Because to me, what, what, what I'm, I'm hearing is, is unresolved trauma, uh, a very limiting narrative about your current identity. Uh, a loss of imagination and confidence. I think. It, it might stem back to education for me. You know, I started reading when I was in sixth grade. I had vision problems that weren't found out until then. So I started very late in life reading, writing um, that have kind of plagued me. As you can see all the books behind me, I'm a much better reader now. It seems like you've overcome a lot of those reading problems, even though maybe you still see from a tunnel vision perspective yourself as a non-reader, the truth may be radically the opposite. Actually, probably there's truth in that because I graduated in four years with a degree when I walked into college. You're probably a- just as good of a reader, if not better than most people. The problem is, is that you still see yourself as that sixth, you know, sixth grade kid who can't read. Hmm. It's perspective. Um, it, to me, what that says is, is that you're still viewing the world from former traumas because at some point or another, you were feeling incapable. You were, you were feeling embarrassed or things like that as a young kid. 
And, and so those were emotionally impactful experiences that m led you to seeing yourself a certain way. And now over these years, you've developed an extreme sense of skill in writing and speaking and, and doing all these things, but you don't see yourself that way. You're still, you know, your, your identity is still that kid who's broken. So how do I overcome those views of myself and set goals that, that are achievable that I feel like I can have success because right now I feel like whatever I do, I can't have the amount of success that I've wanted. You know, yeah. it's like I, so let me put, let me, let me put it this way. Are you familiar with Pareto's principle, the 80, 20 rule? Definitely. So as a real estate agent, I'm in the top 20% of real estate agents, which is a really great category to be in because 80% of the other agents just suck. But I want to be in the top one to 2%. Yep. And I could do it. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. But in my mind, I'm like, how? Because I, I don't, I don't know what to do. Like I set these goals, but then now you don't, you're still, you don't see yourself as, one of those people, you know, when it comes to future self, you've got to actually define the future self of you as one of those top people, but then you've got to actually know what those people do, what they think like, what they're up to. You've got to then surround yourself with those people and develop, you know, their attributes, their strategies, their skills. I mean, it's, it's literally a, a belief system. It's a mindset. It's an identity. And it's a, it's a way of doing things. Becoming world-class at anything is just knowing what you want you know, being able to explain that to yourself and others and then surrounding yourself with that environment, with those people and doing what they do. Uh, I mean, that's, that's what coaching and mentoring and education is all about. Um, studying the craft of those people who are in the top one to 2%. I mean, you can do it. And one, one thing I would encourage you to do is to start to tell people that that's what you're going to do. Uh, a big aspect of clarifying an identity is first off clarifying what you genuinely want and then being heavily explicit about it, telling people that this is who, who I am and what I'm going to do. Uh, you, you'll have a strong sense that you need to be consistent to this new story and you'll do things differently. You'll start to weed out the behaviors and the mindsets that are currently keeping you at 20% rather than 1%. Um, you have to be very explicit about what you want and you have to tell people that this is what you're going to do and then probably, you know, obviously create some forms of, accountability and other, you know, you, you're going to need to remove all the things that are going to sabotage you because you're, because your subconscious right now mm -hmm. is at the current level. Your subconscious is that you're in the top 20, which is amazing because you've already grown in so many ways because you're, you know, there's a really good quote from Dr. David Hawkins, but he says your unconscious will allow you to only have what you believe you deserve. Hmm. So right now you don't believe you deserve being in the top 20 or sorry, top 1%. You believe you deserve being at 20. That's where you're, you know, that's where your automatic and your unconscious and your autopilot subconscious is at. And so your, your subconscious makes up about 95, 95% of your behavior. Um, and so on a daily basis, you're going to just keep acting on autopilot like someone who's in the top 20%. And so in order to actually get to the top 1%, you're going to have to stop living subconsciously and you're going to have to start living consciously and often courageously. Uh, you're going to have to act above your current identity. And in order to do that. So you, I'm guessing you've heard of the concept of um, deliberate practice before. Have you ever heard of that? No. Uh -uh. So deliberate, if you study the psychology of high performance, um, you will find the concept of deliberate practice and deliberate practice is basically the idea of 
very aggressive learning. Um, so like in order to become like a world-class musician, you know, this, the, the idea of the, uh, the one, the, the 10,000 hour rule, have you heard of that one? Yeah. So the 10,000 hour rule was popularized by, um, Malcolm Gladwell, but really what it, where it came from was the research on deliberate practice and the idea that people who become really, really good at something, they, they practice in a very meaningful, intense, like feedback coached way for thousands of hours. And that's how you can become world-class. I mean, it's not just doing something like it's not the same as going to the gym in a routine way. Cause a lot of people they'll go to the gym and do the same workout for like right. a year. And they're on, honestly just atrophying themselves cause they're not, they're not doing it towards something specific and, and their workouts aren't leading to different results. So if you're, if you don't actually have a goal, but you're just in a routine, <laughs> then you're not going to get better. Right. But if you have a goal and you go to the gym with, with the purpose of hitting that goal, so what they found is, is that in order to go through like deliberate practice, you have to have a vision of a future self with the skills that you're striving to develop. So say that, say that again. In order to become, like in order to engage in deliberate practice, which is the type of activity that leads to learning and change, you have to have a future self in mind with the skills or the attributes you're, you're trying to learn. Uh, otherwise, your learning is going to be like going to the gym as a routine, but not with a purpose. And so it's not going to be effective because your vision of where you want to go determines how you do what you do now. So for example, me on this podcast, me talking, I'm, I'm having a conversation, but with my future self in mind, you know, I'm not that person yet. I'm not that person, but it's influencing how I have this conversation. And so this conversation isn't just me doing 50 podcasts. It's me like having a conversation, hopefully in a way that leads to measurable change so that I can get closer to my future self. And so I'm doing this with that in mind, if that makes sense. It does be relatively speaking, because five years ago, there's this identity that's like, well, I probably not in ministry. I would love to do a podcast and somewhere along the way it actually happened. And I became that person. Yeah. You're now a podcaster. about it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And you started doing things that podcasters do, which is different than what you would have done five years ago. So you were acting contrary to your former self and more like your desired future self. You started doing things that were different, which goes against your subconscious. You stopped acting on autopilot and you started doing things with intention. You bought up a, a microphone. Uh, you probably studied podcasters for a while. You, uh, you did whatever it took and you then maybe had several bad interviews or awkward interviews and you felt weird. Those feelings are the feelings that accompany doing something new and intentional. So one, you know, and so one of the big reasons why people don't try new things is because it's awkward. Uh, it feels strange or scary or anxiety. It creates anxiety to do things that you don't typically do because you don't know exactly what the outcome is going to be. Uh, and as, as human beings, our brain literally is wired to predict the outcomes of our behavior. And so when you try new things, it kind of freaks you out because you don't know what the outcome is going to be. And so right. it, it could be, good or bad. And so you, you feel all these, uh, you know, the fight or flight response essentially. Um, but that's how you learn when you actually try new things and even fail, you experience what is called a prediction error. You often pr incorrectly predict what would happen. And so it doesn't work out or you learn something new and that's how you learn. <laughs> and so it's good to go, go through new experiences, to have emotional experiences and to, um, you know, to not avoid emotions. This is actually what's called psychological flexibility. It's, it's, it's holding your emotions and your thoughts and even your identity loosely as you pursue a goal or live out a value. You, 
you know, as you're moving forward, you're going you're gonna to deal with a lot of stuff. But if you let the emotions or the thoughts or even your current view of yourself halt you, then you're not flexible. You're being rigid and you've overly defined yourself and you've limited yourself on what you can experience. But if you become flexible, then you can actually pursue things that often just require going through weird and difficult emotions and learning and change. And that, that's where life becomes a lot more meaningful. That's where you can actually make powerful advancements and you can have what are called peak experiences. So peak experiences or learning experiences are the, are the things that allow you to stop holding on so tightly to your current view because you become transformable, you become changeable. So there's a quote from Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. He said, a mind that is stretched by a new idea can never go back to its former state. Um, and peak experiences, I don't know if you've ever heard of Abraham Maslow. I haven't. So Maslow, have you heard of the concept called self-actualization? I've heard of it. I, if you okay. probably know what it means. It's but fine. It's fine. Go ahead. So, so self-actualization is just a really popular term in like self-improvement and stuff. It was, it, it was brought up by a psychologist back in the 1950s named Abraham Maslow. Basically what it means is, is that you've reached this level where you can essentially pursue and achieve whatever you want because you're flexible, because you have confidence, because you can visualize something and then develop the skills and attributes or connections or relationships to go get it. It's, and in order to get to that level of confidence and flexibility, you need to go through what Maslow calls several peak experiences uh, or aha moments. And Colin Wilson, he's a psychologist and philosopher. He's now dead, but he said the only way to have peak experiences regularly, and these are just learning experiences that open you up. They, 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 they challenge your former assumptions. The only way to have them is to be intentional, to be thoughtful, to be purposeful rather than being passive. If you're passive, you're going to generally be like depressed. <laughs> but if you're, if you're intentional and active and seeking things, then you're going to have learning experiences that open you up to seeing things new. Uh, you'll be able to do things that you didn't formerly think you could do, which will reframe your confidence and allow you to then have a sense. Maybe I can be and do other things than I am right now. Um, and being passive and not having these types of experiences and essentially living mostly on autopilot where you're just replaying out who you were yesterday and overly attaching to your former identity. That leads you to not changing your perspective enough. <laughs> so there's a, there's a quote from Elaine de Button. He's the British philosopher. And he said, anyone who is not embarrassed by who they were 12 months ago hasn't learned enough. Um, I love that quote. Like, I love the idea that if you haven't changed a lot in the last year then you're not actively learning you're just living on autopilot and you're still seeing yourself the same way you did last year or, or five years ago um so i mean one of the big things that i would think about for you in addition to getting really clear and open about what you want and then beginning to acknowledge it and make that your new narrative and your new story and then intentionally seeking learning experiences is you're going to have to reframe your past. You're going to have to go back to those former experiences and reshape the meaning of those experiences and even reshape the identity of your former self, that sixth grade self, uh, and how you feel about that sixth grade version and even all of the other negative experiences you've gone through. You actually have to reframe the meaning of the past. And what's really cool about this is that your memories are fluid. They're changeable. Like memory, memory is not supposed, your memory is not a filing cabinet. Like, it is very much, so there's the quote from, there's the quote from um, Stephen Covey. He said, we don't see the world as it is, but as we are. 
You've right. heard that. Mm -hmm. So the same is true of our past. We don't see the past as it is. We see the past as we are. And so your perspective of the past is not actually objective. It's just how you're currently seeing it. it you're projecting everything about your current self and your current perspectives and beliefs on your past. And so your past is more like if you were to tell me a story about yourself, could be the sixth grade version of you. What I then see, like as a psychologist, is he's not actually telling me about his sixth grade self. He's telling me about his current self. He's telling me, you know, because you're telling me the story of what happened, but you're telling it to me from your current perspective. And if you were a different person with different understanding and different experience, you'd probably see that experience differently. Does that make sense? It does. And so, so you got to go back and face that and, and readdress it and then reshape it. Yeah, go ahead. Well, in all that, you pretty much nailed every question I'd written out. Uh, <laughs> but I have a question based off of your old book, which is Willpower Doesn't Work. Why, why is that such an idea and a romantic idea at that? Because, dude, I can't tell you how many times I was like, man, I just, I wish I had more willpower. I wish I had more discipline. I, I'm going to will my way to accomplishing. And I realized over time, willpower doesn't work. And I'll be honest, I actually haven't read that book yet. Uh, but it's a concept I've thought about a lot. And yeah. so I just, just curious why, why do people have a hard time with this idea that willpower will get them where they want when it really isn't? And then what will propel them to their, their future self? Yeah. Um, willpower is sexy because it's, you know, it, it, what you were just describing is, is you putting all the pressure on yourself. If I do this, if I, it's all just, you're just putting all the pressure on yourself without realizing that, you're incredibly limited as a single person. Like anything and everything you've done that's been significant isn't solely because of your own efforts, but a lot of it had to do with situations. A lot of it had to do with the help of other people. A lot of it had to do with mentoring and education. And so um, rather than assuming that it's all on you, uh, you, you can instead first off, recognize that what you can do is, is only possible because of the situation you're in. Like our, the reason we're having this conversation is because we live in an era when technology allows us to do this. If we right. lived 20 years ago, it wouldn't matter how much willpower effort you gave it, gave it. We wouldn't be able to have this conversation. Yeah. And so it's an acknowledgement of context and it's an acknowledgement that what you can do in one situation and maybe with other people is different than what you can do without it. Just as another example, I could try so hard with all of the effort in the world to see Pluto with my natural eyes, but I couldn't do it regardless of my greatest efforts. But if I look through a telescope, I can see Pluto with ease, right? Yeah. And so it's, it's just recognizing that effort isn't the key. <laughs> like it's, it's not about effort. It's, it's, it's about it's about, um, you know, context and environment. I'll give an example. Well, I'll, I'll first share a quote. So the historian Will Durant, he said, the ability of the average person could be doubled if the situation demanded it. Say that again. The ability of the average person could be doubled if the situation demanded it. So let me explain. There is interesting stories of what's called hysterical strength. Yeah. And 
Have you heard of this before, hysterical strength? Well, I'm assuming it's like the grandma picking up a car off her grandchild. That's exactly it. So the grandma, literally some old, crippled, decrepit woman, can lift up a 2,000-pound car, not because she has the strength to do it, but because of what? Because the situation merited it. Yeah, yeah. And that's not always going to be available, but it's just obvious that various capacities and skills or things like that are far more likely or, or are available in situations that are not available in other situations. And so once you become aware of the power of situation and the power of context, you can then become, in, you first off then can realize, okay, I'm, I am who I am because of my situation, because of what's around me, because of who's around me. You know, the whole quote, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Yep, one of you our favorite to, quotes here. You start to realize literally you are who you are because of your situation. And you're showing up the way you are because of your situation, not because of your willpower. Um, and so once you realize that, then you can start to become intentional. So again, the Harvard psychologist, Ellen Langer, she says that who we are at any one time depends on the context we are in. But the more mindful we become, the more we create the context. We create the situation to become who we want to be. And so, you know, several examples, but I'll share just a few real quick, easy ones. Um, when I was 11 years old, my parents got divorced and my father became a drug addict. And in that situation and in that chaotic environment, uh, I became very limited <laughs> in my possibilities and my ability. I barely ended up graduating high school. Uh, and just, I was in a chaotic state. Uh, I, I then actually went and served a church mission, you know, speaking of ministry. And in that new environment, I could create a new role and identity for myself with new goals and without the constraints and limitations of my former identity and my past. And I was able to quickly become a leader, an expert, all these things, because I now had new capability and a new role and a new identity and a new environment with a new purpose. Um, when my wife and I became foster parents of three kids, we had never read a parenting. I personally had never read a parenting book before. And truth be told, between you and I, it was more her goal than mine. I, she'd grown up with foster kids. I didn't really want to do it. But here's a few things that are interesting. And it actually is what ultimately was the tipping point to write this book. Um, when we got these three foster kids, and this was in 2015, first things first, you take three kids who are from the ghetto, who have drug addict parents, who have, who have been neglecting them for years, giving them just like, like these kids literally didn't go to school. They, they watched TV all day. Five kids slept on the same bed, trash piles and clothes piles heaped to the tops of their trailer. Uh, parents on drugs, kids just eating what they can find. And like, so in that environment, you're quite limited in your options and choices. You take these three kids and you put them in our environment, far from a perfect environment, but all of a sudden you've got two parents who are helping you. You're going to bed and getting like 11 plus hours of sleep, which is what little kids need. You're getting hot meals. You're actually getting taken to school. So you're trying to get an education. You're getting taken to like 30 or 40 different states in your first year with us. And so you're exposed to all different things that you didn't know because before that you'd only traveled 10 miles from your house out in the country. And so just to pull all this together, what I saw in my kids in the first year we had them was radical change because they were in a new context. They had new options, new choices, new support, new abilities. They could go play sports. Um, they had new neighbors, they had new friends. Um, all the, and, but here's what else is interesting to me. You look at my wife and I, who are two graduate students, mostly self-absorbed, and all of a sudden you give us three foster kids. And it's like, 
oh my gosh, I'm this self-absorbed graduate student, totally focused on myself. And all of a sudden I've got these three pretty, you know, struggling, emotionally underdeveloped kids and our house is total chaos. And I can eat and I'm forced to deal with this. Um, and the thing is, is when we decided to become foster parents, we knew we could predict that it was going to change us. We weren't fully aware of all the ways it was going to change us, but we knew it was going to be a transformational experience. It was going to be difficult. We were going to have to face things we, weren't, we, didn't, we wouldn't know how to deal with. And we'd have to do things that we wouldn't typically have done if we didn't have these kids. And so you fast forward a year, two years, three years, and all of a sudden you see the world very differently, just like you see the world differently because of your experiences that you've gone through. And so you change your environment, you change yourself. And so uh, I wouldn't have been able nor wanted to do any of the things that I did as a foster parent if I didn't have those kids. Like if it was just theoretical, if I was just reading books, I wouldn't have done any of the things that I was required to do because of the situation that we intentionally put ourselves in. So when you start thinking that way, I'm thinking about you now, wanting to either be a minister or wanting to be the number one real estate agent, you know, or percentage, top percent. In order for you to do either of those things, you would have to really think about situation and the situation you're in right now and the situation you would need to be in in order to get whatever goal you're looking for. And it would be different than the situation you're currently in, which is keeping you in your current self. And you're in your current. Does this all all make sense? Yeah, no, completely. So then let me ask you this. And then I have three questions I have for you personally. Bang it out, baby. Let's hear it. So, so I specifically about ministry, there's also this factor of God and timing. Um, So I've, I've just said, God, you know, if this ever happens, apparently this is not now and maybe in the future, great. But I'm, I kind of took a hands off approach to ministry. There's a quote that I like, though, by the way, and it's weary the Lord until he blesses you. You might not agree with that or you might not like that, but... uh, Say that again. Weary the Lord until he blesses you. Interesting. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, mean, obviously, sometimes his timing is different than ours, but I think often it's our lack of commitment that then we project on God. That, uh, Anyways, continue. Well, for my situation, I feel like God's made it abundantly clear... That this isn't I'm, you right now? Yeah, it's not me right now. Um, and that's so, fine. Yeah, that's, that's your, yeah, that's fine. I'm not saying that the, the, there could be possibility in the future, but, sure. but it's been abundantly clear. There's many stories I could go through. But so now I'm, okay, I'm a real estate agent, but I still have the desire to speak, teach, write books. And partially I'm doing some of that through this podcast. You're doing it brilliantly, by the way. Thank you. I Seriously. That. You're good at this, dude. You're a freaking great interviewer. Uh, man, I appreciate that because this is like my first, I, I think. Because your first episode. I'm just kidding. Right, yeah, it's my first episode. <laughs> so I think I've recorded maybe a total of 50 episodes now, but I only have probably like 19 rolled out. Would you say so, you're better at speaking and interviewing than you were 50 episodes ago? 100%. There yeah. You go. Yeah. Um, so here's the question. Real estate agent, top 1% public speaking, traveling, write books. Those are two really different paths. Yes, they are. And so I'm trying to figure out, okay, I spent seven, I'm in seven years in real estate. And if I go down this new path, I'm still going to have to do real estate to provide. Do I just- Until you don't. Until I don't. 
But do I just say, you know what? I'm going to give up the speaking idea and I'm just going to double down on doing real estate. And then if I double down or triple whatever, then that will provide other opportunities. Or do I try to grow broke, <laughs> try to grow both paths at the same time, which is funny because when I said that, it almost sounded like try to go broke doing both. <laughs> <laughs> I heard that too. Uh, here's my question for you. And I think this is really important for your own personal identity is one of the things I talk about in personality is impermanent is literally questioning your goals because your goals are the things that shape how you see yourself right now. The goal to become a speaker is shaping your identity and the things you're thinking about and the things you're the goal to be a real estate agent or a minister, whatever you choose as a goal shapes your identity um, and, and shapes ultimately who you're going to become far more than a personality test, by the way. Um, and so my question for you is, in thinking about anything that you could pursue, it could be those two things or it could be something radically different. My guess is, is that you've thought a lot about these two things and that you feel pretty congruent about both to some degree. Um, but my question for you is, what is the goal that's worth pursuing? You have a limited time on this planet. You're a God-fearing person um, or a God-believing person, however you want to describe it. My question for you is, what is the goal that's worth pursuing? Because if you if you're a person of faith, my, my belief system is, is that through faith, all things are possible. Right. If you want to become a minister, I actually believe that you could do it. If I want to be a minister, I know I could do it. If I wanted to be top one in real estate, I know I could do it. I know that through God, all things are possible. If I want to become the number one writer in the world, I know I can do it. Like, and so my question for you is, what is the goal worth pursuing? What is the goal worth reshaping your future self around and even your current self around and shaping your trajectory around and your story and your identity and your environment around? Um, what is a goal? And you don't have to have the full answer because your future self is going to know more than you know right now. And they're going to probably have different and better goals. I can speak from experience. When I launched this book, my goal was to hit the New York times list. I failed, went through depression for about four months. And uh, it was exactly what I needed to say that actually wasn't the goal I wanted. With this book, I have a lot more intelligent and better goals and it's leading me to a much better process because your goal shapes your process and your process is what you do on a daily basis. And, um, and so what, you know, what you aspire towards not only shapes your identity, but it shapes your actions, your behaviors, your relationships, how you show up. And so in asking me those questions, because I, I think time is so valuable and because I think who you become is a product of what you choose to seek, I'm wondering from your perspective, what's the thing that is, would be more valuable? Um, what's the thing that would be more useful from your current perspective? Uh, if in three years you went full board on either or, and if you had the faith and the confidence and then you developed the confidence and capacity over time through what we're called to deliberate practice. Um, but if you actually in three years from now, let's just say became successful at either or really successful, or even if you failed, which one would you think would be worth pursuing and becoming? Everything on my vision board has nothing to do with real estate. And why are you even talking about this? It's, it, well, so here's a question for you. Here's a question for you. No, no, no. No, here's a question for you, really. Um, if we're being honest with each other and we're speaking, you know, remember, be explicit about your goals, which I think is something that people are scared to do because of their own insecurities and because either they don't want to look like a failure if they don't make it or because they don't believe in themselves. If you were to do what your, your heart of all hearts really wants more than anything, 
And by the way, this is the only way to truly be authentic and genuine. What would you pursue regardless of the outcome if you could pursue what you truly want more than anything? So I kind of asked God that question in 2008. What job, what vocation, and I'll go do that. Just tell me. But I'm asking you, what would you want to do? So if you were dead honest about what you genuinely want. So this is what I want. Yeah, what is it? And and it's the saying that I I feel like God gave me, okay? It's living out the heart of God by loving others back to life. And what that looks like will be different things in different times. But it's- What does it look like right now? As the the future version of you. As the future version of me, it's talking to people who are hurting, who are broken on a small and large scale that need to- feel going through as much loss as I have going through. It's insane what you've gone through. You are a very perfect candidate or messenger for such a cause. Thank you. Yeah. Continue. You feel dead on the inside. There's so much pain and turmoil and hurt. And it feels like you're being submerged and held underwater and you can't breathe. And I remember that as a kid playing in the pool. And then all of a sudden you get let go and you come out of the water and you go, (gasps) and you get that breath and it feels like life enters your body. I want to help people breathe and feel alive again. So do you feel similar passion towards real estate or purpose? No. So if you were to be honest with yourself and your true goals and passions uh, and even a sense of purpose, it would take courage to pursue. It'd probably take more courage to pursue the path that you just described because you'd have to be more uh, vulnerable. You'd, you'd, You'd be dealing with, you know, it would take far less courage and far less faith to pursue the real estate path. Um, and which, so, is, which is funny because originally it took a lot of courage to pursue yeah, the real estate. It did a hundred percent. Cause it was, there was difficult learning there and growth and things like that. But at this point with what, you know, the, the person you are now, the evolved development of what you've gone through and now what based on your knowledge and experience you see to believe to be worthwhile and all the experiences you've had, which have been transformational and aha or peak experiences. Um, yeah. I, I think that, from my perspective, based on what you've told me, the thing you would do is, is define that mission and that vision that you've just described and create a future version of yourself living that out and then start telling everyone that that's what you're doing and stop doing all the things that would limit you from doing that. Um, because, you know, again, you're not kept from goals by obstacles, but by a clear path to a lesser goal. And so real estate in this case could be a lesser goal And if you're pursuing a lesser goal, to me, what that means is that, um, you know, you've, you've really bought into a limiting identity and a limiting narrative of who you are and what you can do. And it's based on former experiences rather than future experiences that you could create. And, and it's a lot more powerful in my opinion to be defined by the future you genuinely want and by the experiences that will transform you from the person you are to the person you want to become, because they are two different people. Uh, it's far more powerful to be defined by your future self that you designed rather than by 
what some personality test told you you are. Um, if you genuinely want to be that person, like one of the things I write about in the book is, is that purpose trumps personality. Like if you genuinely believe in a purpose and you're committed to that purpose and you live it out and you go for it, it's going to change who you are. Your purpose will change your personality. <laughs> if you're serious I, about it. Yeah. That's why I was able to graduate college. Yeah. Because you had a purpose. You had a purpose and it, it changed you and developed you into a different person. Um, the same exact thing would be true of both of these goals. Now, one of them, it sounds like you would have a far more potent purpose, which would, you know, there's a quote that says, when the why is strong enough, you'll figure out the how. But it's, it's basically like, I think that the potency of the energy behind the other, but between, you know, you being that spokesman or helping people breathe would lead you to doing things that the other goal wouldn't and therefore would lead to more transformational experiences uh, and would lead you to becoming a different person. Both paths would lead you to becoming a different you. Mm -hmm. um, either way. So there's no just one future version of yourself. There's an infinite amount of future versions of yourself and you've got to ultimately- The multiverse. Well, you're, well, you're going to become one of them, you know? Right. Um, and so there's a quote from Lily Tomlin. She was a famous actress, but she said, I always wanted to be someone I only, I, I now realize I should have been more specific. Um, and so I just think that's why you want to be specific about who your future self is because either of those paths or any other path is going to lead you to becoming a different version of you. You're not going to be the same person, which is again, why overly defining yourself by some test is stupid because you're going to be a different person depending on different paths you go. Um, and so the question is who's the version of you that you think would be most meaningful or, or, or important to become because the goal is going to determine who you become. Uh, if you're purposeful and serious about it, it's going to lead you through experiences that are going to change how you see the world and how you see things. And, you know, you wanting to become someone who helps people to breathe, you can do that now very powerfully, but you could probably do that enormously differently with a much deeper sense of purpose and, and, and ability to execute on that purpose in the future. If you actually go through the experiences that would be needed, you could do that on a much different scale or in a much different way. But right now, you're limited by who you currently are and by the vision you have and your commitment to that vision. Awesome. So real quick, I'm going to hit these questions out for you. Do you, or do you have to go right now? No, go ahead. Let's hit them real quick. Okay. What's the biggest lie in self-talk you had or currently struggle with? Basically my own story is what we're talking about. Like the biggest lie that I've faced. Um, I think, uh, a lie that, I mean, I, there's so many, we all have so many lies that we tell ourselves. I mean, one of the lies that I often tell myself is, is that I'm not like a, a great runner, even though I love running and I can run. Um, I've had knee injuries and things like that in the past. Um, but honestly, my knee is fine. Um, and so I, I tell myself that I can't be the athlete that I know I would love to be. And I could be if I actually had a vision and goal and then put myself through those experiences. Uh, and I, and I'm better at that. Like one thing that's really interesting about confidence and motivation is that the more you actually do things, the more you want them. You know, so the more you podcast, the more you'll want to podcast. The more you go to the gym, the more you'll want to go to the gym. The more you go to church, the more you'll want to go to church. Like, um, motivation follows action, as does confidence. And so, yeah. And so as I've started going to the gym or exercising or pursuing like an Ironman, let's just say, uh, my limiting beliefs fall away. But that's, that's one. I mean, one, I had a limiting belief that if I started writing like self-development stuff online that I could lead people astray, <laughs> honestly. And, and so I didn't do it for like four years. And then at one point I just realized like, 
if my intention is to do good, yes, I'll make mistakes doing that. But I think that that's what matters more than anything. And so then I started, I changed that narrative and I started writing from a new identity. And so, yeah, there's so many things that I'm currently limited by or that I was formerly limited by. What brings you peace? Um, obviously my relationship with God brings me peace. Um, my family, my faith, uh, just enjoying life, not, not needing to prove myself to anyone, believing in myself, knowing that I can accomplish what I want to, if I want to. What's the best decision you've ever made? Uh, I would probably say going on that church mission when I was, um, 20 years old, that, that decision shaped everything for me. And I wouldn't be married to my wife, which was obviously probably, you know, would probably be the top decision, but I wouldn't have even been the person to marry her had I not gone on that mission experience. Uh, I wouldn't be who I am today if I didn't choose to do that. Not that I'm, I'm not even the same person as I was when I did that, but that decision uh, really was a fork and it's led to other forks. So yeah, that, that was definitely the biggest thing I've done. Just curiosity. What'd you do on the missions? Oh, it was mostly, you know, whether it be like evangelical stuff, going out and teaching uh, people or like lots of community service, um, serving in communities. I read a ton of books, filled stacks of journals, like just did a ton of learning, a ton of service, a ton of teaching. Where'd you go? Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh. Cool. Yeah. I've gone twice to Uganda, once to the Philippines uh, on mission trips and you're absolutely right, man. When, when you're intentional about doing something, it will, it will shape your life. Um, That's gonna, why you got to have a future self in mind. Because without a specific future self, then you're acting as your former self and you're not mm-hmm. living intentionally on a daily basis. That's so good. Dr. Benjamin Hardy, man, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Um, I want people to be able to buy your books. Where do you prefer them to buy it? Anywhere. Um, please buy Personality Isn't Permanent. It's a much better and a much more important book than Willpower Doesn't Work. Willpower Doesn't Work is a great book. It's helped a lot of people, but Personality Isn't Permanent is the book you got to buy. This book, it will totally change how you see yourself. It will dispel all the myths that maybe you've been brainwashed into believing um, or that are popular in pop culture. And it will show you how to choose what you want and become the person who can have it. And so this book will totally blow your mind. There's so much interesting, powerful science and just crazy stories in this book. It'll, it'll blow your, it'll blow your mind. I can promise you. I read through a little bit of it through the ebook that your assistant sent me and it looks amazing. Um, And I believe she's sending a few autographed copies this way. And so if you're listening, I'm giving one of them away. If you share this podcast and talk about the book. So That's I'm rad. just letting Thank you guys man. know. You cool, bet, man. man. And then for whatever reason, if you don't know where to find it, you can go to the website. We'll put the book yeah. up there. I mean, uh, Amazon, Audible, but you can go to BenjaminHardy.com and you can learn more about it. Absolutely. Ben, thank you so much for coming on. Have a great day. You too, brother. It was fun. Likewise. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you would, I'd greatly appreciate you subscribing as well as rating and even leaving us an objective review. It helps us with our ratings and spreading the message of the Whole Person Podcast. And now, may the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord smile on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord show you His favor and give you His peace. Thank you guys so much for listening today. Take care and God bless.